The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning from California. I'm so pleased and delighted to introduce Kitty Haley to you once again, to you PIs Declassified listeners. Kitty is a well-known, is very well-known in the private investigator community. She's the author of two books, Code of Professional Conduct and The Professional Investigator. Good morning, Kitty. Good morning. Thanks so much for sharing, coming and sharing the show. Uh, you know, you have such a fierce passion for this profession, but, and a lot of people know you, but probably a lot of people that are listening do not know you, Kitty. So how did you become a private investigator? Oh, my goodness. It, it's it been such a long time ago, I almost forgot. But um, <laughs> I, I really started out in education, and um, things happened. I'm a child of the 60s, and um, I was involved in Camden, New Jersey during riots, which may sound familiar to some people because it's kind of history repeating itself. We're mm. doing the same we did the same thing then that is happening now in Ferguson and so many other places where um there was a a, a need for change and I got involved in the middle of it and got involved with a lot of people who were doing something about it and somehow or another that all transitioned into get out of education and do something that will be more helpful. And I ended up in uh, an investigative agency that I eventually took over. We were the first all-female agency in the state of New Jersey, and we had Mm. 27 employees. It was crazy, and it has since transitioned into me working on my own, Um, Mm. which, by the way, is financially just as good as working with 27 employees. (laughs) For sure. I found the same. For sure. And and for a while you were working at the Federal Capital Habeas Unit um, yeah, pursuing... Yeah, I, I worked for eight years as um, as an investigator with the Federal Defender Capital Habeas Unit in Philadelphia. It was an amazing time. I did death penalty reinvestigations, and that means that my clients were all on death row, and they have the right to appeal their cases up until the time of execution because we have this habit in this country of executing the wrong people. And so it's a a matter of finding the truth that was never found years and years ago because sometimes these cases were 20 to 25 years old. And we Mm -hmm. went back into the trenches and reinvestigated them from the time of the crime up to the present time. It was um, 
It was humbling, awesome, and frightening at many times, but uh, very worthwhile. And did you find that you were able to clear people and get them exonerated? Um, I was involved in a couple of um, cases where the situation was turned around, where my clients were walked off of death row and back into general population, meaning that they might have been complicit to some extent, but not um, not the actual doers or not the people who should have been executed. In some cases, they were mentally not capable or culpable. Mm-hmm. And in one case, we actually walked somebody out of prison who was a lifer. Unfortunately, he is back in, but um, that's something that is still ongoing. So, yeah, I've, I've been there, and it's... Um, it's the most awesome feeling in the world to know that you have saved a life. It's mm-hmm. incredible, especially if that life would have been taken wrongly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was fabulous. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's it's good work. You know, we we have to have checks and balances, and and, and thank heaven that we have that with capital cases, for sure. Right. Well, Francie, you should know that because you do a lot of that kind of work yourself. And it's, um, it's amazing to be out there doing defense work. A lot of people in our industry are former police officers, and so mm-hmm. they get incensed thinking that we're working for, quote-unquote, the other side, and we're mm-hmm. not. When you're an investigator, you're, there's only one side, and that's the side of fact and information. Right. And right. if that information is given to two different investigators, one doing plaintiff and one doing defense work, hopefully... We're going to find the same information because we're working with the same data. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say the word truth because there is no such thing as truth. But a right. fact is a fact, and a piece of data is a piece of data, and it's the way it gets twisted and turned or hidden that becomes the problem. Absolutely, and we experience that. I, I think in the criminal defense world, we probably experience that more than any other field. Um, and and really, I think confronted with ethical situations in the criminal defense world rather than we do anyplace else. Oh, it's- I couldn't agree more because I've done everything. Uh, when I worked with my agency, we were a full-service agency. So we did everything from domestic matrimonial work to um, uh, slip-and-fall accidents. If, if it was out there and it needed investigation, we did it because we had the manpower and it was uh, it kept a lot of people employed. So I found that in the criminal world, there is a greater desire to be right. And, and because of that, prosecutors or even, even defense attorneys will sometimes twist the truth so that they can be on the side of right. And that's not what it's all about. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we do live in a world that's supposed to have these checks and balances and we're not always right, and I think it takes a big person to say, guess what, I've found this piece of evidence, and it does not help your client, but at least you know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. It's exactly right. Well, and th- thank heaven that there are a number of uh, prosecutors' offices now that are established in integrity units to go back and check the facts on some of these cases, the old cases that maybe people were wrongfully convicted. Right, and I have I have spoken to both investigator groups in uh, prosecutors' offices and in defense uh, organizations, and they're both really necessary. And everyone is pretty much in the same 
um, mindset that attorneys tend to kind of take the evidence that we put together and use it as best they can because that is their job. But the evidence that we gather doesn't change. It's what mm-hmm. we find. Mm-hmm. And, the tr- you know, again, I don't want to use the word truth, but information is information. And if it's there and it's verified, then it becomes evidence. And evidence, uh, if you want to come as close to the truth as possible, evidence is the truth. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. So that brings us to um, talking about ethics. Now, I've already had questions, Kitty, because we titled the show Ethics and Etiquette. Uh, you know, uh-huh. what, what's the difference? And I've already gotten questions. Well, ethics and etiquette isn't even the same category. So tell us about that. Why do you think there's uh, a connection? Well, actually, I'm not sure that there's a connection, but but in some ways there are. And And the reason that I was interested in this is because I've had people say to me, you know, I don't need a book to tell me how to act. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's not why I wrote the book. Okay, this is the third writing um, of a book I called Code of Professional Conduct Standards and Ethics for the Investigative Profession. And I wrote it in 2002 because it needed to be written. We lived in the Wild West of investigation. Absolutely. And people did. were doing anything they damn pleased. I yep. mean, they were tapping phone lines and entering premises that they had no right to enter and doing things in violation of the law. And I was concerned that my job was on the line and my reputation was on the line. And so I put together um, a code based on the standards that were mostly approved by the majority of investigators belonging to professional associations, because that's where you find people who are really concerned about doing things properly and learning and educating themselves and uh, becoming up-to-date with state-of-the-art techniques. So I put it together, and it has changed as our access to information changes. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't put together a book that said how you should act, although it does include an area on being, um, being good to one another, uh, treating each other with respect, mm-hmm. because I think as professionals we should be doing that. But ethics are how we see ourselves and what code or of morality we deal with. Etiquette. Well, what I <laughs> what I think is people. interesting, Kitty, is is uh, that people. Uh, when you hear people talk about ethics, they're, you know, they, they sound black and white and, and that they're so simple. And you've written a book of 120-some pages. Clearly, it isn't a simple topic. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. I mean, think about it this way. Um, let's go back to the, the criminal defense situation, okay? We work with attorneys who are criminal defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the crime that they may be defending and the crime we are working with might have been the most horrific thing in the world. And frequently, I would read a case and become sickened. You know, someone has killed a child or, mm-hmm. or maimed a loved one, and the details are just the most horrific and disgusting thing. And I can't morally agree with that act. But as an investigator, it's my job to find out why it happened if it happened. And, and so we do things that are against our own morality. 
that doesn't mean that we agree with what we're doing. Just because I have investigated um, uh, a woman who is in an adultery situation doesn't mean I condone adultery. Correct. You know, it, it, there, it, I am not my client. I do not live by their standards. I live by my standards. And so I had to set those standards as high as possible so that I didn't prejudice my case because of my own personal belief that I didn't um, not work for someone because I didn't like uh, what he had done. But I worked for people because I need to get to the facts of the matter without prejudicing it with my own proclivities. Well, and what you described is exactly what happens is emotions take over. And it doesn't matter whether you're a police officer or a prosecutor or a defense attorney or a private investigator, emotions play a part. And you have to remove those emotions in order to look at it through a lens that is, like you say, objective, that to the best of your ability. Right. And, and I think the, et- the etiquette comes in with the filter that allows us to function because we do not like everyone we interview. And there are cases that I know I go into houses and the first thing on my brain is I want to scream, oh, my God, clean up your damn house. And Mm -hmm. I can't do that. I have Mm -hmm. to smile and sit down on something that hopefully doesn't contain diseases and conduct an interview (laughs) and be as impartial as possible because that person's surroundings does not indicate what they saw or did not see in the way of evidence. And so I can't prejudge an individual based upon where they live or what their socioeconomic status is or what their religion is. And and I have to learn to be as as polite and gracious as possible to everyone in every situation. I walk into a clean house, and that doesn't mean that I treat that person better than Mm -hmm. if I walk into a dirty house. I'm still dealing with a human being who has information I need, so I must be courteous and I must be respectful. And in all cases, I shake hands before and after an interview. Now, I might go out and use Purell before <laughs> I get in the car, <laughs> which is frequent, yeah. but, um, but everyone deserves a modicum of respect, and yeah. that's where the etiquette comes in. And yeah. it's part of being a good ethical investigator. It's part of not bad-mouthing your, um, your colleague or uh, proclaiming that you are better than someone else. It's, um, it's kind of an interesting combination of the two. It is. And, and it is, I, I, I can tell you just exactly what you described. You can, you can read a police report or, or a statement or, and you say, oh my gosh, how could this have happened? It's so horrific. But then... Many times, if you start tearing it apart, your initial reaction maybe is based on a lot of loose ends tied together that may not necessarily connect the dots. Right, exactly. And, and you know, it's, it's also interesting. We have known because of um, conferences and interaction with other investigators, we've all known people who in our business are excellent investigators. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Really amazing. They do a fabulous job. They 
they get evidence and information that's necessary to save lives and to change the course of, of someone's destiny. And yet, personally, they are the most obnoxious louts that I could ever meet <laughs> in my life. And just because somebody acts in a manner that is disgusting or rude or abrasive doesn't mean that they're not ethical. And I think we have to learn to separate the two. Sometimes we confuse them. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting way of looking at life. I, I feel like as investigators, we have an extra burden. We have to figure out who is who and what is what and make snap decisions and judgments, but we also have to look past it because it's our responsibility to give a, a total picture and not just our first impressions. Our first impressions keep us alive. The total picture gives us the information. Well, you're absolutely right because I think we um, often equal liking the person with being an ethical person. And there's a lot of uh, sociopathic scammers out there that are very likable that aren't ethical. So, uh, we, oh my God, Bernie <laughs> Madoff must have been a hell of a of a man. Exactly. You know, he had to be the most charming and delightful companion. But you know, personally, uh, his his ethics were somewhere lower than um, you know. Ponsco. Whatever, but <laughs> right. it's so, okay. it, so yeah, having having all of the trappings of um, uh, of uh, etiquette doesn't mean that you're an ethical individual. Exactly, Kitty. We need to take a quick break. More to come from Private Investigator okay. Kitty Haley. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. What is against the laws a changing landscape doing to all the technology advances? And so today we're talking with Kitty Haley about this issue. And Kitty, uh, you know, how, how has it changed? I know you're, you're coming out with an update on your, your book, Code of Professional Conduct. What has changed that, you're, that you feel a need to uh, update the book? Oh, wow. Everything. In the, the, since 2002, when the first edition came out, we have an explosion of Internet accessibility. There's information out there that is awesome. And between that and the uh, GPS um, locators and wiretapping and drones and surveillance cameras and everything being done remotely, there's so much now that investigators can do. But the question is, should they do it? And and that's where the conundrum comes in. Uh, Just because you can find someone's profile on Facebook, does that mean you're allowed to friend them if they're a party to um, on the other side of a case that you're investigating? Is that ex parte contact or is it not? So Mm -hmm. there's so many things that have to be looked at. Right. And then, of course, drones are a big thing. We just got a catalog yesterday in the mail that have mm-hmm. multiple drones for Christmas gifts. What's, okay. What are we going to do with that? <laughs> well, I mean, look at the concept of surveillance. There are laws that say that we can watch a property, but we can't enter that property. Mm-hmm. So if we can stand on the sidewalk and see activity inside and watch two people uh, filling baggies with what looks like cocaine because it's a white powder and you can't tell unless you go up close and sniffing it, you know, um, but you see it and you see them doing something then you, and you can take photographs of it, then you have evidence because you can see it. But if those windows are closed or the drapes are closed and you don't see anything, you have no idea what's happening inside of a house. Mm-hmm. Now, you can actually go up above and look over a fence and see what's happening in somebody's backyard. So the question is, is that legal? Is it ethical? Just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. And that's where the problem comes in. Because every state and every region and the government and everyone is coming up with their own decisions on what we can and cannot do. And it Mm -hmm. puts the investigator the precarious position of now having to understand the law in each area before right. he or she does something. Right. You just don't go out anymore and do surveillance. You don't put a GPS on a car unless that car belongs to the person who has retained you and you have permission to do it. And then there are all of these that- privacy problems. Do you know that if that's true in all states now? I don't know whether no, it is. You know what? I, it's, I don't believe it is. Yeah. And so, again, there's that extra burden of responsibility. Um, there's some new case law regarding um, contact with someone on the Internet or looking at someone's privacy pages. And, and, I mean, here's the deal. We want it all as, as a society. We mm-hmm. want total privacy and security, but 
while we have that total privacy and security, we want the right to take photographs of our genitals and put them out on the Internet or, or, or text them to somebody else. I mean, it's crazy. It, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense that there is this dual di- or dichotomous relationship with, I want to have total privacy, but I want everybody to know what I've eaten for dinner. Right. And it causes a problem for us because there are laws that affect us and there are standards that affect us. But for the most part, we are burdened by what our attorneys are burdened by. So if we're working for an attorney in anticipation of litigation or in the middle of a case where they are representing someone in a a criminal matter, then we have the same standards they have because we become their agents, and if we do something wrong, they could lose their license to practice. Mm -hmm. So we're now not only concerned with our own license, Mm -hmm. we're concerned with the license of the person for whom we're working. Correct. And so the burden has doubled. And if we can't, if they can't do it, we can't do it. It's as simple as that. Well, and, you know, the problem is that often attorneys and the private private sector think we can do things that we can't, that we have a ma- some kind of a magic wand that we can do things right. we can't. Have you ever been asked to do something uh, that you know is either unethical or illegal by a, uh, an attorney? Oh, uh, with great regularity. Does <laughs> <laughs> she choke? All the time, you know. Can't we just get inside with a hidden body camera and take pictures? Well, wait a minute. Uh, no, I mean no. You just there are some things you just can't do. If you're an invited guest into a premise, uh, then there are many things that you can do. But if you're not an invited guest, then you can't. Uh, I, okay, here's an example, and this is kind of a little bit weird, but a long time ago, um, I needed to see if someone was stealing product from a very exclusive um, art company for mm-hmm. whom he worked. And we believed that he was stealing some very highly priced things. Now, there was no way I could get into his house legally. Mm-hmm. There was no way I could do it. However, coincidentally, while driving by one day, just to look at the property and see what I was dealing with. Um, I saw his wife outside gardening and I started talking to her. I stopped the car and said, what lovely flowers. Oh my God, you're so good at this. I have a purple thumb. And we started talking about flowers and she said, well, I do bonsai creations also and they're all in the house. And I said, oh, I would love to see them. She said, well, come on in. Let me, <laughs> let's have a cup of coffee. We just got along beautifully. So I was an invited guest by his wife to go into his house to look at bonsai pants. As it turned out, I also saw an awful lot of artwork that looked exactly like the stuff that had been taken from her husband's place of business. And so I was able to actually observe something inside. I would not have been able to do that if she had not invited me in. Right. So it was it was a combination of fate and personalities that made us get along well enough for me to be invited inside the house. But and under no circumstances could I have put a body camera on and gone in there with without permission. And it doesn't come under the category of pretext because you just stopped to talk to her about her flowers. Absolutely. Didn't pretend to be somebody else. Yeah, I was me. Introduced myself with my own name. Now, did you actually have a body cam on when you went in the house? 
nope, because I had no anticipation that it was yeah. going to happen. I was really just checking the area to see if there was a yeah. way of doing surveillance to see if somebody brought artwork in and out of the house. But as it mm-hmm. turned out, um, there was a perfect opening, and I just stopped my car in front of her house. It was my car with my license tag, got out of the vehicle, and had a lovely conversation about flowers because the reality is I Joe basil. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. So it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. So have, have you ever had anybody, I had uh, an attorney ask you to get somebody's DNA? You know, I've not. I've never had that. Um, I have had uh, attorneys want me to do everything from, um, you know, finding military records and um, uh, looking at personal Facebook pages, and it's, it's kind of interesting because everybody thinks Facebook is the only way of getting information, and, and there's so many things. I mean, you know, we all know Twitter, Tumblr, Flickr, whatever. Everything is there. It's just a matter of, are you invited to use it? Can you legally use it? Is it accessible to you? Um, can you friend uh, the sister or brother of someone can get information that way. Uh, and if you're just observing, is it really ex parte contact? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're just looking, is that ex parte contact? If you're not involved in a conversation and you ask no questions, can you still do it? Well, it, if it's it open becomes, source inf- information, then anybody can look at it, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So... Um, Back to the drones. So, um, you know, how do you handle a situation where uh, you have a client that uh, wants you to get as much information as possible with it? And you're a drone uh, operator, say, for instance, mm-hmm. and, and they want you to follow somebody with your drone. How do you handle situations well, like that? Or the- you have to do the first answer to do is check with uh, your the attorney who has retained you or your own legal counsel to find out if it's legal to do that in the state or the district where you're working. Mm-hmm. Because, again, laws change from place to place. And um, for, I, I want to be the person who can afford the drone that can follow. I mean, right. that's <laughs> yeah. the first one because they get really expensive. Exactly um, right. But, you know, it's it's a question that's under um, review right now in most jurisdictions and in most um, uh, courts of law and by legislators. How far can we go? I mean, that issue is really big right now. And until there are decisions, every time we do something, we may be charged with invasion of privacy. We may yeah. be uh, subject to um, uh, to uh, arrest or um, or worse, depending on where it is that we're doing something, because people do have a right to privacy. The question is, if someone's doing something wrong, do they still have that right to privacy? Correct. You know, do does someone have the right to break the law just because no one can watch them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're watching, are you breaking a law? And again, those are things, those are questions that have not been sufficiently answered. 
and it leaves a lot open in our industry where people just automatically think there's new technology, I'm going to use it. And that's that's cool and exciting, and everybody wants to be on the bandwagon of what's new and sexy. But new and sexy may not equate to legal and ethical. Exactly right. And, and laws are being uh, passed every year, uh, certainly in California this year. I don't know about uh, uh, Pennsylvania, but certainly regarding how high you can fly, um, right. where you can fly, and the whole issue of being over somebody's backyard uh, is, is a problem because, I mean, one of the things that always comes up is the children are playing in the backyard or somebody's sunbathing in the nude in the backyard, and that is should be protected. Totally, total violation of privacy. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting problem because the concept of a drone is not necessarily the con- concept of a surveillance camera. Attaching a surveillance camera to the drone is what becomes a secondary problem. Mm-hmm. Because you have the right to airspace, does not mean you have the right to survey from that airspace. Right. Yeah. It's complicated. Right. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it goes to the... Um, even to, to the use of apps and, um, and accessibility to information. I mean, there's, there's that company out there that something like, you know, ran an investigator by, by getting an app and, um, and you can have somebody followed anywhere in the world in the next 25 minutes. And, and that sounds really cool, except what if the person you're following is a 15-year-old girl and you're following her because you're a pervert and you're interested in um, in stealing her and, and doing her physical harm. So uh, how do you how do you put checks and balances on things and still do your job? Just yeah. because someone wants you to do it doesn't mean you have to do it. And if it's against your own morality, then you've got to stay away from it. That that little voice in your head that says, uh uh-uh, uh is is the biggest um, guardian of our morality because we know what's right and we know what's not right. And yeah. if it smells or it doesn't feel right, then we have to stay away from it. Yeah. I, you know, I totally agree, Kitty. And, and what happens often is um, an investigator, and, and this probably applies to any profession, doesn't matter who it is, but um, you have a client and you think you should do the best for that client. And uh, if you don't think these things through, some of those things may become either unethical or uh, illegal, um, and you just you have to think about it. It has to be something that's on the forefront of your mind, uh, and tune into that gut reaction. Like, ooh, would I really want this done to me if I were on the other side? Right. It's it's it goes back to the old concept of do no harm. Just do no harm. Do not intentionally hurt anyone. And if your action is going to do that, then you've got to be careful, which is where that's interesting because that's where the ethics and the etiquette kind of cross because you can hurt somebody by having a conversation with them. Yes, it is important to do an interview, but if the interview is about uh, someone who has just lost a child and they are in mourning, then sitting down with them at that moment and having that conversation might do you a lot of good, but it might actually harm that person mm-hmm. to a greater degree. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a balance, and you've got to weigh it, and you've got to figure out what is going to be best. Um, you, you know, someone who has just lost a leg is not really ready to talk about the accident where they lost their leg because they're mm-hmm. still getting used to not having it. And it might be a trauma that they may not be able to deal with. And again, it's, a, it's kind of um, a courtesy to figure out how best to do something and what is going to be best overall for the case, for the investigator, for the client without physically harming someone. It's, um, it's a conundrum. You know, and, and often it comes down to just asking the question. Right. Is this, are you is there, ready? Could, are you ready? Is there a better time? Right. This is important. Can we do this? It's going to yeah. have to happen. It would be better to do it now. Can you do it? Um, yeah. and, and, and again, anybody could do it. I mean, you know, we can, we can be the reporter on the scene who shoves a, a mic in somebody's face who's just been part of a, a Paris bombing and say, how do you feel? Well, we all know how they feel. They feel miserable and lousy and, and upset and scared. But if, if it's for sensationalism, that's one thing. If it's to get to the fact of the matter, that's another. Mm-hmm. And I think we have to be really careful whether we see ourselves as reporters with microphones or whether we're looking for real information and real evidence that can be utilized later in a court of law. It's so true. You know, we all want to be the person that brings the aha back to our client. Right. We, all, we the reporters want to be the person that gets the news that's going to hit the hit the country. They want to get the interview. That no matter what it is, that's what we all are striving for is mm-hmm. to get get the big item, get the get the thing they want that maybe nobody else possibly could get Um, but we have to balance it we need to take another break kitty we'll be right back the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest, Philadelphia private investigator Kelly Haley, has made it her mission to school other PIs on the on the code or a code for professional conduct. Kitty, what what instructions or advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out in the private investigation business? Oh wow! The first thing is turn off your television set because we are not CSI Miami or. Um, whatever that newest cop show is anywhere around the world. I mean, I would love to believe that I am as glorious and glamorous as every female investigator out there and that I do everything in a half an hour with two commercials, including finding my own DNA. You don't uh, do that? Really? <laughs> I, yeah, well, I, you know, I saved the world yesterday, but that was it. <laughs> I jumped out of a helicopter onto the top of a moving train. In your um, that's Woman another suit. thing, though, so we won't go there. But uh, I think the bottom line is education. You know, really get to know your industry before you get into it. It is not what it's portrayed as in um, in popular fiction. And it's just it's a lot of hard work. There's not a lot of glamour. There's a lot of going through dirty evidence that's still stained with blood. There's a lot of um, of reading volumes and volumes of of paperwork before we even hit the streets and get out and do something. And there's a lot of cooperation. Everyone thinks that they're a lone wolf and they're going to get cases that no one else is going to get. And reality is we're in this together. There are not a lot of us in this industry. And those of us that are together know that we rely on each other for information, for help, for support, for backup, Mm -hmm. and for education. I've learned so much through professional associations and seminars where I've met other people and just had discussions. How would you handle this case? What would you do? And, and mentoring with older people who have been in the industry for a long time really, really helps because old does not equate with over the hill. Old equates with I have so much knowledge and I have so much to share. And when you can put those two together and help each other, it becomes a fabulous combination. So just because somebody isn't young enough to to run a, a four-minute mile doesn't mean that their brain isn't more agile than yours. Right, exactly right. And when it comes to ethics and etiquette, what would you say? My, I'm always of the um, attitude that if you treat people nicely, you will get more information from them. You know, uh, the, the days of the old gumshoe who walked in and flashed a badge and, and you know, the just the facts man person, I think they're long gone. We have so many means of communication. I think it's our duty to use them and to be respectful of all people, including other investigators. We tend to be really... Um, strange with each other. You know, Pretty rude no sometimes. Why we yeah. can't help each other. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go back to that concept of we need each other and we should be respectful of each other and each other's reputations. Dead nothing. Someone is like totally off limits. 
And that kind of crosses the ethical and the etiquette line. Mm-hmm. But as far as ethics are concerned, we, we kind of create our own, but they're very simple. It comes down to honesty to yourself and to the client, um, paying your bills on time and, and, and requesting reasonable fees, uh, making sure that we don't violate someone's privacy, and checking with the law to make sure that we do something right before we do it, as opposed to doing something first and then going, whoops, I may have made a mistake. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm looking at your book here. Kitty, um, Code of Professional Conduct, Standards and Ethics for the Investigative Profession. And on page nine, you have a summary of the rules of professional conduct. Mm-hmm. And it's licensing, first of all, number one, certification, highest professional standards is number three. Mm-hmm. Uh, abiding by the law, number four, cooperation with law enforcement. Advertising and the investigator, which also should be truthful and tasteful. Solicitation mm-hmm. for attorneys and misconduct. Mm-hmm. So that is the basis that we should all be operating under. And then you've carried yeah, it I further. Think... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was well, just going to say. You... That's, that's as for ourselves in our profession, maintaining the highest integrity so that when we, um, when we ply our trade, we're doing it well. Because why would you do something if you're going to do it half-assed or wrong? Exactly. And then you've carried it further by covering investigator-client relations, um, investigator-investigator relations, and then transactions mm-hmm. with other persons. All right. kind of in the same framework. Handling, you know, um, you add conflict of interest and obviously and confidentiality and not doing any harm and all of those things. But the bottom line is really, if no matter how you look at it, it's respect. It's respect. It's good business practices. And um, it's understanding the ultimate goal. I mean, why are we in business? And, and that's really simple. Our business, our, our job is to find out things. Now, that doesn't mean that a non-investigator can't find out those same things. But right. with our experience and our knowledge and our networking, we have the ability to find things out quicker, easier, and probably in a more accurate manner. And because we are professional, we can put it together so that it can be utilized for um, the court of law, for litigation, for a need-to-know purpose. And these are, this is what we do. Uh, I mean, I'm sure, Francie, people call you all the time and say, well, I, I'm looking for my boyfriend. I did everything I could. I've, I've done everything in the, on the Internet that I could possibly do, um, and I can't find him. What can you do that I can't do? And the reality is just because it's out there doesn't mean that the average person knows how to use the information that's there, nor do they know how to verify that it's true. And that's the role of the investigator. Mm-hmm. We go that one step further. We know how to check it out and make sure that a fact is a fact and it's not some fictitious uh, rumor. And that's where it becomes important. We verify. Yeah, there's that saying of verify, 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 and it's true. Mm-hmm. Because even, um, interestingly enough, you can interview the same person three times and get a little bit different version of the same thing each time because they're adding more information that you need to verify. 
Right. In, in the Defender Office, I learned that there is no such thing as one interview. There yeah. is an initial interview. And then yeah. there are times when you go back and you go back and you go back and you go back. And there are relationships that are established between you and the witness. And over a period of perhaps three or four months or maybe a year and a half, you learned to talk to someone now, not as an investigator, but more as a friend, mm-hmm. because you now know them and they're familiar with you and they open up more. So each time you go back, you get something more. And sometimes that aha moment doesn't come until a year later. You know, I I recently, I've told this story, I don't know, I've told it on the air, but I've told this story. I uh, recently reread the book, All the President's Men. Mm-hmm. about the Nixon investigation. And I read it the time it came out, in the 70s or 80s or whenever that was. I read it then. But I wasn't an investigator then. And I reread it recently. And I was struck by the number of times the investigative reporters would go back to the same person over and over and over, even the door was slammed in their face. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was amazing. And, and I thought, you know, we don't do... You know, often you get rejected at the door because of fear, mm-hmm. because um, they're uncertain. They don't know who you are. But the next time you see them, maybe it's a little bit more casual, maybe a little bit more personal. And you develop those relationships by going back. Right. It's, it's a matter of being thorough. You're really never done with the job up until the point where you're walking them into the courtroom and and you say, just get up there and tell the truth like you've been telling me over the last six months, three years, however long the case has been going right. on. Right. right. Because you, you've instilled the confidence in someone that they now understand what it is that they saw and they've told you everything that they could possibly tell you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we all speak the same language, but sometimes we speak it differently. And the meanings to words are not what we think they mean. Right. So we have to be very careful. Yeah. And never, ever it's... ask anybody what's normal. Because what's yeah. normal for you is not what's normal for me. And so we have those preconceptions. Well, interesting you would say that. Because yesterday I heard in court the witness said that he, the, the witness stated that he had said, I'm cool, when he meant that he disagreed with what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there going, what? Am I hearing this right? Right, vernacular. It changes every day. Oh, my God. You, Yeah, you really, you have to, you can't assume. You have to, you have to ask right. the question, even if it can't seems so obvious. Thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, Kitty, um, for people that are interested in getting your book, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be on Amazon, I'm assuming. It is. It doesn't come out until January. Okay. And I'm not sure where I'm going to be speaking yet, but um, I am researching now, going to a couple of different conferences and making it available that way. But it will be um, it will be out there, and it'll be on my website, which is being rebuilt at this moment, which is very difficult. www.kittyhaley.com, and Haley is spelled H-A-I-L-E-Y. Okay, and it's Kitty Haley, all one word. You got it. Okay, and so it's Code of Professional Conduct, Standards, and Ethics for the Investigative Profession, third edition. That's right. 
Oh, good. I okay. think this may be the last one I write. We may turn it over to someone else after this. And what and what are other books do you have on your horizon? Because I know you you are a prolific writer. Uh, so what other things are you going to be doing? Well, I think I'm thinking of putting together my um, articles from the past ten years and and uh, putting them together as a compilation. But I'm also working on a bunch of memoir style stories based on real experiences. Um, protecting the innocent and not getting myself sued by naming names, but telling some of the more probably humorous and self-deprecating things that have happened over time. Mm-hmm. Because telling stories has become my thing, and I'm enjoying mm-hmm. it thoroughly and, uh, and, and learning to relish the people that I've met over time. And I'm just thinking, what would you say has been the most e- egregious breach that you've ever been asked to, to do. Do you, can you think of something like that? Oh my goodness, yes. I've been asked to harm someone. Okay. And, um, <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah, and that that just doesn't happen. Um, someone read too much of The Godfather or whatever and thinks that, uh, you know, or thought at the time that investigators had these contacts with the underworld. And uh, it's not in my... Um, DNA to mm-hmm. do something of that nature. It is uh, totally, it was so offensive that someone would even think that I would assist in such a uh, an endeavor that it was awful. I mean, I was sickened by it, but yeah, that was the most egregious. No, I cannot harm anyone, nor would I harm anyone, nor would I give you websites where you can find out how to harm anyone. So that was was a shocker. Wow. I was really surprised that someone knowing me would even think that I could do such a thing. But then I guess they didn't know me that well. Yeah, interesting. Well, Kitty, you bring so much to the profession. We're at the end of our hour. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, and I'm I'm looking forward to reading your new book. I'm looking forward to getting it as soon as it comes out, so let me know. Well, and, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I think you do so much for the industry just with this show alone, not even talking about your personal work. So it's been an oh, honor thanks. to be on your show. Oh, thanks, Kitty. I appreciate that. You're a good friend. Uh, so tune in again, folks, next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and wonderful people like Kitty Haley. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.